Father, we come to you now before your word. As we open your word, we pray that your word would open us and that we would be eager to receive what you have for us this morning, that you would speak, that we, we desire to listen, not just to incline our ears, but to incline our hearts toward your word. And in as much as uh, we need grace to do that, we pray that you would incline our hearts toward your word in this time together and not toward selfish gain, not toward anything else that would be derived from self, but would all that would be derived toward you and a desire to hear from you and a desire to commune with you. As you speak to us, may we frequently speak back to you in our hearts, asking for grace and help and encouragement and praising you for the innumerable ways in which you work in our lives by your Holy Spirit. We ask for his help in this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are in the section of Exodus um, that's dealing with the tabernacle. We are coming down to the home stretch here. We got about four sermons left in the book of Exodus. I believe this is number 40. So we have been in the book of Exodus quite a while, but we are almost through as we can encounter this tabernacle narrative and as God begins instructing his people how to build it. So last week, or two weeks ago, we began by talking about the tabernacle itself and kind of unpacking what, it was, what the symbolism of it was and how it's fulfilled in biblical history. And last week we considered the priesthood, the people who worked in the tabernacle, and this morning we're going to consider the people who worked on it or who were called to build it. Um, and two of those names were mentioned in Eric's reading in Exodus 31, but we're going we're gonna to talk about these workers and what we can learn from how God builds his house. So although God devised plans, as you know, for building the tabernacle, there were two different sections of Exodus that deal with the building of the tabernacle. There's Exodus 25 through 31, which deals with the detailed instructions, and then there's Exodus 35 through 40, which explains it was how it was built according to the instructions. So a huge part of material in the book of Exodus is devoted to this tabernacle. And it's interesting that God could have just dropped it out of the sky. Couldn't he? He could have sent it. I mean, he sent, uh, he sent bread from heaven. He could have sent a tabernacle from heaven. But yet he called on his people to actually contribute to its construction. The Israelites knew God that he was the God who had created the universe out of nothing. They knew Genesis 1-1, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Surely they would have agreed with Paul in Acts 17 that God does not need man, he's not sustained by man, he doesn't, he doesn't need anything that man gives to him, and yet God is pleased to have men and women build his house. And God determined that his house would be built through ordinary means. It wasn't going to be some supernatural thing. It was going to be a very ordinary thing. So this morning we're going to consider how God builds his house. And I'm going to be making application to us about how God builds the church. Since the church is the new tabernacle, it's the new temple of God, and we are that temple. So we're going to make application to how God builds his house in the Old Testament is very similar to how God builds his house in the New Testament. So as we walk, walk, keep that in mind as we begin walking through Exodus 30 and 31 this morning. The title of the sermon is Co-Laborers in God's Building Project. Here's the first point. God builds his house through grateful motivation. God builds his house through grateful motivation. The Lord instructs his people in Exodus 30 and 31 to give an offering, but he wanted a certain kind of offering. 
He didn't want a compulsive offering, an obligatory offering. He wanted a willing offering. He wanted a heart offering. He wanted a want-to offering, not a have-to offering. Look at several passages that speak to this. First of all, turn back to Exodus 25, where in in, uh, God's beginning instructions regarding the tabernacle, he mentions the following as far as how the contributions to make it are to be made. Exodus 25, verse 2. Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. Look at Exodus 35, skipping ahead a few chapters, to the actual construction of the tabernacle. God restates it. Exodus 35, verse 5. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. Gold, silver, and bronze. Chapter 35, verses 21 and 22, where we read, And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting, and for all its service, and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart, brought brooches and earrings, brooches and earrings, and signets rings, and armlets, and all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. Again, verse 29 of that same chapter, all the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. One more verse, Exodus 36, verse 2. And Moses called Bezalel and Oholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. I mean, just see the way in which God describes this over and over and over again, what kind of contribution he desires. He wants a generous contribution. We read in 1 Chronicles chapter 29 regarding the building of the physical temple much later. 1 Chronicles 29 verses 3 through 9, we read the following. Moreover, in addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own of gold and silver. And because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. 3,000 talents of gold, of the gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver for overlaying the walls of the house. And for all the work to be done by craftsmen, gold for the things of gold and silver for the things of silver. Who then will offer willingly consecrating himself today to the Lord. And then the leaders of fathers' houses made their free will offerings, as did also the leaders of the tribes, the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, and the officers over the king's work. They gave for the service of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. And whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord in the care of Jahiel the Gershonite, Then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly. For with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. David, also the king, rejoiced greatly. Brothers and sisters, God desires certain kinds of offerings. And the offerings he desires are grateful offerings that are driven by a heart that loves God. John Calvin said, All scripture teaches that no obedience is pleasing to God except that which is voluntary. God wants a willing heart. And lest we think this is just an old covenant idea, Paul said as much to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Remember these words? The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. 
each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That's what God desires for us now. That's what God desired for his people then. And all that voluntary motivation, all that willing heart, all that heart desire comes from having received such grace from God. See, when you think about how God delivered his people from Egypt, he delivered them by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, freely by grace. He did it because he wanted to do it. He did it because he was willing to do it. He was driven by his heart out of love for his people to rescue them from oppression and bring them into the land. He wants nothing less from his people. He doesn't want his people to treat him the way he didn't treat his people. He didn't act out of obligation to his people. He didn't say, okay, I know I made that covenant with Abraham. I got to do it. I hate it, but I'll do it. I, made, I swore to myself, I got to do it. No interest in doing it, though. Just, wanted to, just have to do it. No, God did it clearly because he wanted to do it. And so he wants the same heart from us. God had rescued them from slavery. He showered them with treasure. He delivered them from their enemies. He led them through the wilderness. He provided water to drink and food to eat. He'd shown them his glory. He'd given them his law. He atoned for their sin. And when they reflected on all that God had done and and contributed to them, what did they do? They wanted to contribute to God. Their hearts were moved. Their hearts were moved. I was thinking this week, I came across an illustration of the missionary, the Dutch Christian, Corey Ten Boom. And I was reminded that as we offer our gifts, we need to remember why we give. We do not give ourselves to God to gain anything in return, but because God has given himself to us in Jesus Christ. A powerful illustration of this comes from Corey Ten Boom's life. In her book, The Hiding Place, Corey remembers the day that her aunt received the news that she had a terminal illness. The woman, whom Corey called Tante Jans, was well known for her Christian work. She supported charitable causes all over Holland, writing tracts, giving talks, raising funds, and yet she seemed proud of her spiritual achievement. And although people said she was a good woman, somehow she didn't always remind them of Jesus. And then a day came when medical tests indicated that Tante Jans had only a few weeks to live. The family wondered how she would take the news. We will tell her together, said Corey's father, and perhaps she will take heart from all that she has accomplished. So she put great store on accomplishments. So they all filed into her study, and here's how they disclosed the news to her. When Tante Jans looked up, she gave a little gasp of recognition. And instantly, she knew why they were there. The family sought to console her. They told her that she would have a great reward for her labors. They reminded her of all the organizations she had founded and the articles she had written and the money she had raised and the talks that she had given. But Tante Jans refused to be comforted. Her proud face crumbled. She put her hands over her face and she began to cry. Empty. Empty. She choked through her tears. How can we bring anything to God? What does he care for our little tricks and trinkets? Then something amazing happened. Tante Jans lowered her hands, and with tears still streaming down her face, she whispered, Dear Jesus, I thank you that we must come with empty hands. I thank you that you have done all, all on the cross, and that all we need in life or death is to be sure of this. That's how you get a heart of giving. 
That's how you get a heart of giving. Not by thinking about how much we have to offer God, but by knowing the Savior who gave himself for us. Do you know Jesus? Then if not, he offers you this morning the gift of eternal life. All you have to do is trust in him. And if you do, and if you do know Jesus, then he wants you to give yourself to him and for the sake of his glory, offer him everything you have and everything you are from the heart. That's the kind of contribution that our Lord desires. So God builds his house, first of all, through grateful motivation. Secondly, God builds his house through generous donation. God builds his house through generous donation. David Hyde, in his commentary on the tabernacle, writes the following. He says, The tabernacle narratives do not begin with a mallet, chisel, or measuring line, but with an offering plate. That's where the tabernacle narrative starts. We already read 20, chapter 25, verse 2, where God says, speak to the people and, and br- let them bring a contribution. People were called to contribute the necessary materials for the tabernacle's construction. And when Moses brought this requirement to the people, how did they respond? Well, we saw already they were eager and they were willing, but I want you to actually see it in their own words. Look at chapter 35 verses 5 through 9. Chapter 35, we'll start at verse 4. Actually, we read 5, so skip down to skip down to 6. Blue and purple, this was all that the Lord was calling them to offer. Blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones, and stones for the setting, and for the ephod, and for the breastplate. Listen, everything, everything that went into that tabernacle came through the hands of his people. There was nothing dropped out of heaven. Everything. And God employed all of his people to do it. There were people who were building fabrics and sewing, and there were people that were hammer, cutting a wood, and there were people who were hammering stuff together and, and, and providing oil for the lights and spices and, and stones and precious stones for the, the garments that the priests were wearing. and Over and over. Look at verse 20 of that chapter. Then all the congregation, chapter, 20, chapter 35, verse 20, then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and they came everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose heart moved him and brought the Lord's contribution. Verse 22, so they came, both men and women. We read that. Verse 23, and everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linens or goat's hair or tan ram skins or goat skins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed a kea wood of any use in the work brought it. Verse 25, and every skillful woman spun with her hands, and they all brought what they had, spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. And all the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair, and the leaders brought onyx and stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastpiece and spices and oil for the light, for the anointing oil, from the fragrant incense. All the men and women of the people of Israel whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work of the Lord that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be brought, done, brought it as a freewill offering to the Lord. It was such an amazing act of faithfulness and generosity on the part of the people of Israel, all motivated by God's love for them. We see also in chapter 36 something similar. Chapter 36, verses 6 and 7. So Moses gave command, and the word was proclaimed throughout the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing 
For the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. Look at verse 8. And all the craftsmen among the workmen made the tabernacle with ten curtains. They were made of fine twined linen and purple and scarlet yarns with cherubim skillfully worked. The length of each curtain was 28 cubits and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. All the curtains were the same size just as God had instructed. You notice how generous they were. They were so generous that they gave beyond what was even required to the point where Moses had to say, stop giving. We don't know everything else is going to goodwill. We can't use any more. What an encouragement. We see the same thing. I'm not going to take time to read it, but this overflow of generosity was also present in the building of the temple in 2 Chronicles 24, verses 8 through 12. I'll just read one verse so you get the feel for um, how, how much that people had gave in those days. 2 Chronicles 24, verse 11. And whenever the chest was brought, this was a chest that was filled with contributions, was brought to the king's officers by the Levites. When they saw that there was much money in it, the king's secretary and the officer of the chief priest would come and empty the chest and take it and return it to its place. And thus they did day after day and collected money in abundance. So we see there. And then Second uh, Chronicles chapter 31, verse 10, Azariah, the chief priest, who was of the house of Zadok, answered him, Since they began to bring the contributions into the house of the Lord, we have eaten and had enough and have plenty left. For the Lord has blessed his people so that we have this large amount left. I mean, we see this even in the New Testament. We see it in the example of the woman who came to Jesus in Matthew 26, verse 7, with the alabaster flask of expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as we reclined at table, a generous donation of love to the Lord Jesus Christ. We see it in the early church in the book of Acts, of Acts chapter 4, verse 34 through 35, where we read, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. And of course, probably the greatest of all the passages in the New Testament regarding overflowing generosity is the example of the Macedonians in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Let me remind you of those, brothers and sisters. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 5. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Stop there. That is so counterintuitive that Paul can only say it has one origin, the grace of God. Why? Because look at verse 2 again. A severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy. We don't think that can coexist. We think we can be sad when we have a severe test of affliction that that gives us a reason to be sad. But he says, no, what the grace of God does in our hearts and in our souls is that when we experience a severe test of affliction, of course there's pain, but nevertheless there is an abundance of joy. And notice, it says their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity. We typically think nobody should give. If they're in extreme poverty, don't give. You couldn't stop these Macedonians from giving. They didn't care if they had two pennies to rub together. They were going to give. And they gave, and God, and, and Paul looks at that and says, Behold the grace of God, joy in the midst of affliction, generosity in the midst of poverty. 
And then verse 3, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord. In other words, they were wanting to do it. They were willing to do it. They weren't being coerced. They were doing it because that was their heart. And then verse 4, Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. See, that's where you get that heart. You give yourself first to the Lord. Say, Lord, everything I have belongs to you. You're my king, you're my God, you're my Lord. It's all yours. So they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then they gave themselves to the saints. And when they heard about the saints struggling, they wanted to meet those needs with a generous offering. So, brothers and sisters, when we give to the church, let's remember who we're really given to. We're given to God. Then this explains why we collect an offering during the worship service. Not to mandate that everybody must give during the worship service or that you're not giving. That's not the point. But we were trying to centralize the importance of offerings as part of worship since giving to God is an act of worship. We're not handing over the price of admission or paying our dues. We're offering something to God as an expression of praise to him. As the scripture says in Psalm 96 verse 8, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, bring an offering and come into his courts. Some of our money goes to this building, as you know, where we meet for worship. Some of the money goes to support our pastors so they can devote themselves to pray and the ministry of the word. Some of our money goes to fund ministry in our church and outreach from our church. Some of it goes to support the work of missions around the world. You guys know, you read the budget. Phil Riken says, bringing an offering is one of the best ways that we can do something for God. What is remarkable is that God is willing to receive our offerings as an act of worship. Everything we have belongs to him already, and he would be well within his rights to take it back. Instead, God allows us to offer it to him as an act of worship. It's like a father who gives his children money to buy him a birthday present. When he opens the gift, he's getting back his own. But the giving of the gift is significant for the relationship. It's not about the money or where it came from. It's about the affection that the children have their father and that's exactly why god wants his people involved in building his in his building project because that's what good good dads do good dads want their kids involved in what they're doing a wonderful story of what happens when we give our very best for god's holy work comes from 1886 in the city of philadelphia there was a little girl there named hattie may wyatt who was sitting outside grace baptist church on broad street she was crying because the church was already filled to capacity and there was no way for her to get in. The preaching of the pastor, Dr. Russell H. Conwell, was so renowned in Philadelphia that the little church was almost packed every week. So when Dr. Conwell arrived at the church that morning, he recognized Hattie Mae's problem, lifted her up on his shoulders, carried her inside, put her on the platform, and told her that she could sit there during the service. That day, Dr. Conwell told his congregation that he hoped someday he could build a new church. Hattie Mae took him seriously and began saving her pennies. Sadly, in the providence of God, she became ill and died just a few months later. After the little girl's funeral, her parents came to Dr. Conwell, handed him 57 pennies, and told him they were for the new church. It was the first contribution to the building fund. At the time, there were no serious plans for a new building. It was simply an act of uh, generosity for the future. But when Dr. Conwell told the church's trustees what had happened, they decided it was time to buy some property. They found a lot on Broad Street and began to negotiate. 
the owner was not a Christian, but when he heard about Hattie Mae Wyatt, he agreed to take her 57 cents as the down payment and to let the balance stand on a 5% mortgage. It was a generous offer, but the congregation did the trustees one better. When they heard about Hattie Mae and her pennies, they raised the full amount for the land and presented it to their pastor as a gift. Within a few years, Philadelphia's famous Baptist temple was built. The best thing about this story is not the building itself, but what it was used for. Here's what Dr. Conwell said in his own words. Quote, The mission of the church is to save the souls of men. That is its true mission. We are here to save the souls of dying sinners. We are here for no other purpose. And Dr. Conwell was right. The purpose of the church of Jesus Christ is to save dying sinners by preaching the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we are sinners saved by grace, and our hearts compel us to give our very best for his holy work. How pleased do you think the Lord was in Hattie's 50-cent offering? And that was her generous donation. So we've seen, first of all, that God builds his house through grateful motivation, through offerings that are born out of gratitude and love. Second, God builds his house through generous donation. And third, God builds his house through gifted cooperation. And here's where we're going to spend the rest of our time. Notice the people who were enlisted for the construction of the building. We read several of them in Exodus 31. But there were two men set apart in particular. And their skills and gifts were used by God in completing the tabernacle. We read in Exodus 35 at the very end of the chapter, verse 34. And he, was in, he has inspired him to teach both him and Ohaliab, the son of Ahizamach of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to do every work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen or by a weaver by any sort of workman or skilled designer. Brothers and sisters, you see here in these chapters the breadth of God's gifting to his people. There's not, I mean, he's gifted men and women, and he's gifted men and women in different ways for different tasks. And we see here that the women were involved and the men were involved according to their skills, according to their talents. Unless we think that God only gifted some, he intends to give to every one of his people something to do. Look at, look at Exodus 31, verse 6, where we read of, the, of Oholeab, and, and, and we read there that I have given to all able men ability that they may make that what I have commanded you. And then we read something similar at the beginning of 36, Exodus 36, verse 1. Bezalel and Oholeb and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. So let's be clear. Without everyone participating, now these two brothers were set forward as kind of leadership. They were kind of foreman on the job, so to speak, on the, on the, on the building project. But nevertheless, without everyone participating, this tabernacle never would have gotten off the ground. It never would have been built according to God's specifications. He specified the way it should be built in such a way that it was impossible for one person to do it. It was impossible. There was no way that one person was going to be able to do this. This was a community project. And brothers and sisters, so it is with the church. We aren't run by a few skilled people. It takes the whole body to build the whole body. Look at how the Spirit's work is described here. 
God enabled this man to build this tabernacle, according to Exodus 31, 3 and 6, by his spirit. By his spirit. The spirit sanctified the ability, the intelligence, and the work of men and women to do this task. Sometimes God may do something supernatural and beyond someone's normal ability, but more often, as we see here, he works through us by perfecting an existing God-given giftedness. There's something, there's a, there's a disposition that we have, there's a desire that we have, there's talents and abilities that we have that God, by his spirit, intends to use to build his church. It's not like he gives us something that's totally counter to our personality or totally outside of our wheelhouse of our strengths or totally beyond what we're able to do. Rather, it's oftentimes something we want to do, something we're good at, something we, we can make contributions in, something that we get excited about, something that frustrates us that other people don't do. It's those sorts of things that, that where we recognize the Spirit of God at work in us and where he begins to, to reveal to us what our giftedness is. The plan of building the tabernacle was executed with skill and with precise obedience, but mark it, it was the work of the Spirit of God. So we need the Spirit of God to accomplish the work of God, however ordinary that work looks. And brothers and sisters, this is a good word for us because we can have a tendency in our strengths to rely on ourselves. Say, I don't need the Lord for that. I'm good at that. I can do that. I, can. I mean, you could think, right? But there's an emphasis here over and over and over again in these chapters, by my spirit, by my spirit. My spirit's going to fill them. My spirit's going to enable them. My spirit's going to do it through them. And this was a recognition that they needed God's spirit to do even the ordinary things of building the tabernacle. I mean, you could walk up to a carpenter who's building the tabernacle and say, hey, you ever cut a acacia wood before? He's like, yeah, 10,000 times. And, but in those moments, he's being filled with the Spirit of the Lord to do it. He may not recognize it, he may not sense it, but nevertheless, the Spirit of the Lord was indispensable. So we need the Spirit of God to, to accomplish the work of God. Also, the Spirit fills us to do tasks that are not always considered sensational in the eyes of others. This was very, very ordinary plotting work. It didn't look spectacular, it wasn't going to get a medal, there wasn't going to be any platform recognition. Nobody was going to give them a trophy. It was just ordinary, skilled labor. That's all it was. And these people were empowered by the Spirit of God to make stuff. That's what they were. Does that change the way you view the work of God? I hope so. I hope it makes you more earthy and more real and less, if I can say this, less hyper-spiritual. Because actually, this is very, very spiritual, and this is very, very ordinary. Nothing spectacular about this. They're cutting beams, they're sewing yarn, they're making clothes, they're putting a tent up. But God's Spirit is working. Think about Acts 6. Remember Acts 6 when the church was growing and the needs were increasing? What did they do? They decided to appoint some men to meet those needs. And what did they look for? They looked for men who were, according to Acts 6, verses 3 and 5, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, full of faith. That's awesome, right? Full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, full of faith. What were they looking for them to do? To serve food to hungry widows. Say, Paul, you're looking for men 
who are full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, full of faith, to serve widows gladly and make sure they have enough food in the daily distribution and they don't get overlooked. Does that change the way you think about filling of the Spirit? And yes, that's ministry. And for those who are filled with the Spirit and walking with Jesus, nothing's beneath them. Nothing's beneath them. Serving food to a needy widow is not beneath them. They'll gladly serve widows. They'll gladly visit the sick. They'll make coffee on a Sunday. They'll care for children in the nursery. They'll set up chairs. They'll work security. They practice and lead in worship. They'll help those in need. They'll give generous offerings. They'll engage in a thousand acts of ordinary love. That's what you all do, all by the Spirit of God. All by the Spirit of God. And God gifts us as his people in wonderfully diverse ways to build his dwelling. I love this. I love this vision of diversity that's present here in the building of the tabernacle. Not everybody did the exact same thing. But they did diverse things all working toward one common goal. That's the way the church is supposed to function, brothers and sisters. We are a diverse group of people with diverse giftings. We don't all enjoy the same things or like the same things or have the same gifts, talents, and abilities. But we all work together toward the same goal. Listen to how Paul puts it in various passages in the New Testament regarding our gifts. Romans chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. You know why we have different gifts? Because God's grace did it. God's grace decided what gifts we have. It wasn't us. It was God's grace. So he says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Sounds like Moses to the people in the tabernacle, right? If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in his generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. We see something similar in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 to 7. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each, to each, to each, to you, to you, to you, to you, to you, to me. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That is the common good of the church. First Peter 4, 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything... God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I mean, we just see it all over the Bible, right? There's various gifts. They're all empowered by the same spirit. They're all to be used in the same mission. So while some throughout the congregation of the Israelites were gifted in construction, making the tent, making the Ark of the Covenant, making the mercy seat, making the table, the lampstand, the two altars, the basin, all that were made out of wood. Others were gifted to weave and sew curtains and make the holy garments that the priests wore, while others were gifted to create wonderful perfumes and incense. We see here that God gifts men and women for all kinds of work. God loves blue-collar work, God loves creative work. Do we have a tendency to exalt one above the other? You know, like white-collar work versus blue-collar work, creative work versus artistic, you know, like 
like thinking God likes that stuff kind of better? No. In fact, construction, we could say, is a form of creative work. It's what it is. God loves plumbers. Amen. <laughs> and all Keith Withrow and his kin said, amen. And God loves carpenters and God loves artists. Artists. At art that represents the good, the true, and the beautiful glorifies God. Some of you ladies and some men are amazingly tempted, or gifted, tempted, not tempted, gifted artists. Might be tempted in various ways, but you are. But gifted artists. And when you make good and true and beautiful things, it glorifies God. I think of the brothers in our church who work with their hands. I think of the sisters in our church who are gifted aesthetically, who can create beautiful spaces and play music and paint or draw and cut or style hair or make a wonderful meal or a great cup of coffee that I can't appreciate. I don't like it, but I know lots of people do. So all those things, though, all those aesthetic things are very, very glorifying to God. They're part of the way he made you in his image. And so we need to recognize that as God's people, that God builds his house in three ways. He builds it through grateful motivation. God's kingdom doesn't advance. His church doesn't grow if his people don't have a heart. If his people don't have a heart, his church doesn't move forward. But guess what? He gives us as his people a heart. <laughs> if, if we don't make sacrificial, generous donations, the kingdom of God doesn't move forward. It doesn't. It doesn't move forward. And we must decide to give what we've decided in our hearts to give, not some reluctant, under-compulsion giving, but a generous donation. And make it regular and cheerful, as the Bible calls us to do so. And then we need to recognize that it takes the whole church to build the whole church, and we do it through gifted cooperation. So rather than seeing gifts as competition, we need to see gifts as complementary. We need to praise God for the ways in which he has gifted others and not resent others for not being gifted for the ways that we are. You ever tempted to do that? I am. And that's a very, that's a big problem in the church. We get, resent, we get resentful that more people aren't gifted like we are when that's not the vision at all. The vision is for you to be amongst a group of people that are radically different from you, that have radically different I, now, not radically different theology and radically different understandings of God, but radically different gifts and radically different interests in how they build the kingdom and contribute to it. I mean, I think we could, we could literally go row by row in the, for the rest of the sermon, which I'm not going to do, and, and signal out the ways in which God works. And as pastors and deacons, we kind of get a front row of it because we get to see God working among you in different ways as you come to us with various ideas and, and, and dreams and desires, and we just see how God's gifted you, and it thrills our hearts to see that. It thrills, to, it thrills our hearts to see you love and care for one another according to the gifts that you have. And I just call you to do it more and more and more for God's glory, the good of this church, the building of God's kingdom, the glory of his name. Excel in that. Excel in gifted cooperation, generous donation, and grateful motivation, all for the glory of his name. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for the ways in which you call us to be co-laborers with you in the building of your kingdom, in the advancing of your cause, in the, in the building of a building for your name, which we know is not a physical 
temple in this time period, but is a spiritual one, a church of the living God where all of us are living stones being joined together to build a holy habitation in the Lord. And so, Lord, help us to, and help all of your churches, not just this particular local church here at Heritage, but to, to, to all of your churches to be gifted in these ways. We know you are at work in this exact same way now as you were back then. You are inclining people's hearts. You are opening their wallets and their resources. You are gifting them in specific ways to contribute to the building up of the body of Christ. Use all of us in those ways. Make us all willing. Make us all generous. And we know that you've made us all gifted. So help us to use those gifts to serve in ways that need serving. Thank you for all the ways that you have demonstrated that you're at work by your Holy Spirit in our church. We can literally, we will literally witness it five minutes from now as an army of people rise up to serve in various ways. We've been served this entire time that we've been together by the musicians on this stage right now, by the nursery workers caring for children, by those who came in early to set up chairs, by those working security right now, by those who made coffee and refreshments, by those who will provide a connect lunch, by those who will take care of innumerable details that are are being handled, all because you have gifted us. This is your grace and we thank you for it. We thank you for the ways you were at work in the ordinary ways in our body, but nevertheless supernaturally inspired by your Holy Spirit. Use us to build, build your kingdom and advance your cause. We ask for the glory of our King, Jesus Christ. Amen.